Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Series 3 of Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. This series is sponsored by our friends at Safer Roads GM, helping us to keep ourselves and each other safe on the roads of Manchester. This week I'm joined by legendary punk poet and Salfordian icon, Dr John Cooper Clark. He talks about his time at school during the post-war period. When I was 13, I wanted to be a professional poet because obviously I was the best at it, even though the competition was fierce in our class under Mr Malone. And he describes how he always wanted to be a professional poet. I've always tried to take it into uh, the entertainment business, you know, a place where a place where you wouldn't expect to find poetry. Gives a great pleasure to welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester a chap who, when he first arrived on our TV screens back in the 1970s, it was like nothing we'd seen before. He looked like Bob Dylan. He had the energy of Beep Beep the Roadrunner and he had a way with words that was... Uh, magical and he's still with us all these years later mr john cooper clark dr john cooper clark welcome to humans of excess manchester thank you very much clint we're in the um luxurious surroundings of the lowry hotel lowry hotel yeah and you were born like a stone's throw away from here weren't you not far i have brought i have brought yeah 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 not that far 
Were you born in the hospital or in the were you old older? hospital? Yeah, near Langworthy Road. Yeah. What are your memories of uh, childhood around here? Uh, well, uh, I spent a lot of time in Hope Hospital, actually. I was born there, and then uh, a few years later, I returned there as a tubercular patient. Were you poorly for a long time? Yeah, yeah, I ca yeah, quite a while. And, of course, it was the worst air in Europe at the time, you know, given the uh, activities in Trafford Park back in our industrial heyday. Yeah. And uh, I was sent to live in Rill, which was then a, a thriving holiday resort, serving Liverpool and beyond. It was paradise, wasn't it, Rill? It was. It was all right it then. Was, yeah, was. there was, you know, shit going on. Yeah. What else do you remember? What are your standout memories of being a child in Salford? Was it a dirty, smoky place back then? Yeah, I used to hang around in Oddsall a lot because my cousins Sid and Frankie lived there. So, uh, you know, we used to, you know, they used to come, uh, they had a TV before us and uh, and we had, an, uh, we had an indoor bathroom. <laughs> so we had this trade-off where we went round to their house on an, uh, at nine o'clock on a Monday night uh, to watch Wagon Train, and they could all come to our place for a bath. Amazing. <laughs> we had an outside toilet. We lived. Uh, I was born in '59, grew up in Oldham in the '60s. Uh huh. We had an outside toilet for most of the '60s. I think. Well, I was always, I was always lucky with the indoor bathroom facilities because I never lived in a house right. until now. This is the first house I've ever lived in. I've always lived in apartments. Right. You settled down in Colchester of all places recently, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Is that just looking for somewhere a bit peaceful? No, not really. It's, it's an army garrison town, I think, peaceful. <laughs> so you're going to have to look somewhere else. A party town. <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, lively place because uh, of that. And uh, no, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's all down to a woman. The woman who is now my wife. Evie? Yes, indeed, yeah. Evie. Evie. The lovely Evie. How did you get on at school? Were you a, were you a scholarly sort of uh, kid? I didn't like school. I hated it from what the word go. Yeah. So in a way, kind of uh, getting tuberculosis was a kind of a godsend because I'd already learned to read a bit and then I could sort of choose my own reading matters, you know, yeah. given that I spent most of my time alone uh, in, a, in a holiday resort. Yeah. I don't think people would do this now, but I was, uh, I was turfed out of the house at 10 a.m., and I wasn't expected to be back until tea time. And uh, all that time in between was entirely uh, entirely my area. Was reading a big thing for you? I mean, yeah, when, massive. When... I, I've always been a, 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 you know, a bookworm. What about poetry? When did that come into your world? Uh, very early on. You know, well, at school, when I was about 12, we had a particularly inspirational teacher called John Malone. And uh, it was a secondary modern school, Catholic secondary modern school, St. Thomas's in High Broughton. And uh, he was a, he had a real flair for uh, extending his interest in uh, mainly Victorian romantic poetry. Every summer holiday, every September, he would return to the school with a new injury. He was big on outdoor pursuits, <laughs> so he didn't have any of that baggage of the uh, of the nerd or the Nancy boy. You know, it, it, everybody's seen him as quite a tough little fella, but he had this weakness, as I say, for uh, for the opiated poetry of Edgar Allan Poe and people like John Keats, which he conveyed to it to the entire class. You know, uh, astonishingly. It wasn't just it wasn't just me that got into it. He kind of fostered a hot house, competitive atmosphere of poetry, whereby even uh, the toughest kids in the class were kind of uh, uh, had always had their nose in a dictionary. Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. I don't think that would happen now. 
there's a, a great deal of, uh, I think it's a great deal of um, erroneous mythology about the nature of secondary modern schools in that immediate post-war period. You know, I think it's seen as a scrap heap, you know, a social scrap heap where, the, where they send the industrial cannon fodder of tomorrow, you know, to do meaning, latrine diggers and the like, you know. It wasn't like that, not at all. We were never made to feel like we were getting a second-rate education. You know, we were expected to do well. And even if we were being prepared for a life in industry, at that point, industry was becoming very technological and very uh, complicated, and uh, one had to really be uh, literate in order to cut it, even in a factory. So uh, it was a great standard of education. In fact, I'm amazed. I watch uh, University Channel and I can't believe what they don't know. I'm like, Christ, I knew that when I was eight. So you were born, you were just, was it four years after the, the war, the Second yeah, World War? Yeah, it's about 49. Did you feel, as a kid, did you still feel that, the aftermath of what just happened? Did, did you sense that? What, the war? Everybody was it was obviously very interested in it on account of our parents were involved. Yeah, a great deal about it, you know, and those movies were all coming out, you know, Reach for the Sky with Kenneth Moore, the Dam Busters, you know, the whole, you know, the 50s, so, well, the late 40s and 50s right through till really the 70s. Well, they're still making them now, aren't they? Absolutely. Second World War movies and, yeah. Uh, yeah, lest we forget. What about music? When did that come knocking on your door? Music, I, uh, music really never ap- appeared in our place until my uncle Dennis uh, finished his uh, national service in the RAF, uh, where he served in uh, Cyprus and uh, Jordan and uh, those kind of uh, uh, trouble spots in the far-flung reaches of the decaying empire. So when he moved in, before that, the only music I heard were really was on the radio. But when my uncle Dennis came to live with us, uh, he brought his uh, collection of American popular music, uh, pre-rock and roll, you know, so it would have been the late Doris Day, sadly. I was a great fan of hers. Doris Day, Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy Leaf, Sinatra, Dean Martin, Mel Torme, people like this. I loved all American popular music, even before rock and roll, but then, you know, Elvis, wow. What age were you when this happened, when he moved in with all these amazing records? Uh, would have been about 1954, maybe, right. yeah, I guess. I'm, very, I'm bad with dates. But about then, yeah, and he, as I say, he brought some, uh, he brought some uh, great albums with yeah. him. Yeah, and then 50s rock and roll happened, didn't it? It changed your life. Yeah, yeah, that. he wasn't into rock and roll at all. He was kind of the, a little bit older than that. You know, he thought it was vulgar and noisy. You know, he liked proper singers, Nat King, Cole, like, but just give you the list yeah. so he was quite antipathetic to rock and roll but naturally uh you know it was uh i was i was uh, i was ready for that because you're an absolute aficionado when it comes to 50s rock and roll music well the, 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 encyclopedia. The, i'll tell you what though the the what the, there was music that sort of get were a pointer to rock and roll even then you know so it wasn't kind of right out of the blue I mean, Elvis, obviously, right out of the blue. If you told me he'd dropped from a superior planet, I would believe you. <laughs> but uh, we'd had sort of inklings of uh, of the rock and roll approach uh, with records by, uh, certain records by Louis Prima and uh, and uh, Louis Jordan and the Timpani Five, you know, boogie-woogie stuff, you know, rock and roll in all but name, really. Was that like, uh, I mean, to me, punk was the moment that changed my path in life. Did uh, the 50s rock and roll stuff change your journey? 
Did it have the same impact back then? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, you're the priority get a guitar. <laughs> but yeah, I can't ex I can't convey uh, how rare it was to even see a guitar. Yeah, it was certainly uh, a big event, especially, you know, Elvis. I mean, Bernard Manning, he started life, his show business career as a singer. I think it was with the Phil Moss Orchestra. I could be wrong about which, but it was a dance band in the, the tail end of the dance hall era. You know, every band was on the American model, so they would have a vocal group, a close harmony vocal group, which usually comprised two men and a woman. The two men, one would specialise in tender romantic ballads, while the other one would do the more raunchy kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I say, uh, Lewis Jordan or maybe a Brooke Benson. He was around at the time, Brooke Benson. People who, who got involved with the uh, soul scene. They were they were kind of around in that pre-rock and roll era and occasionally you heard them. But uh getting back to the Phil Moss Orchestra and Bernard, he was one of these uh one of these the group, you know, but he was the one that specialized in uh in the more raunchy uh Brooke Benton type stuff. It, one of the songs I heard him I, I used to hear him it was uh, a song called Kiddio by uh, Brooke Benson, it, it, and it was it was vaguely a kind of a hoochie-coochie man structure, I think. Ba-bam, ba-bam, one of them, if I remember rightly. Mm. Anyway, the point is, this is how astute Bernard was and how plugged in. You know, the film also, whichever orchestra it was he sang with, they had bookings for uh, about two years in advance. You know, they, were, they didn't have a night off for two years, you know, and they're on the bus. Suddenly, Bernard pipes up, goes up to the governor. He says, uh, "He says, uh, I'll work. I work my notice. I'll honour these gigs, but after that, pay me up. I'm getting out of this business. I'm going to open my own club. I'm getting out of this business. It's finished." Mm. He said, "This is finished," meaning <laughs> dance bands. And they were all like, "What? What are you talking about? Don't be a fool. You know, we booked up two years in advance. Blah blah blah. What's brought about this sudden change of heart?" And he said, "It's all over for this kind of music." Haven't you heard that Elvis Presley? <laughs> He'd heard Heartbreak Hotel somewhere. And he knew what was coming and next. And quite rightly figured, yeah. this is it. And that's when he uh, and that's when he bought the Embassy Club. Yeah. I think it had been a snooker hall or something. And he bought it, knocked down right. The rest is history. There's a famous bit of film footage where Tony Wilson interviews you at Salford Tech. When you're working as a, were you like a lab technician or something? Yeah, but a lab technician, that ain't as sort of involved as it sounds. That was the, the job title of anybody who, uh, who wore a white coat and yet wasn't qualified to be a lecturer. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, did you start there? Did you study there first or did you go no, there? No, I never went to any college. I never studied anywhere. Right. Apart from when I was a printer, I did day release at uh, Sackville Street when it was Manchester Art College doing typographic design, but that wasn't full-time. It was part of an arrangement to do with the apprenticeship that I was uh, serving. How did you end up on stage? I mean, doing your poetry, when did that start? Doing the poetry? Well, it started, I, I did a little bit of it in the late 60s, actually, at a club called Mr Smith's. I remember that, yeah. And uh, I got a kind of residency there that went into the 70s, you know, I had this residency. And I was pulling pretty good money, you know, and all I had to do really was write. And that's when I was very much a local person. I was writing stuff, you know. It's when I read uh, Salome. 
In fact, I did one of my early shows was at. Uh, in fact, the first place that where I got actual money was at the Embassy Club, <laughs> and uh, and what swung it? I remember talking. I had to do the do an audition for for the before reference Bernard Manning. And I was saying, he said, what do you do, Linland? So I'm like, uh, poetry, Mr. Manning, you know. Oh, no, oh, they don't like poetry here. They can't read half of the fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, no, but it's not like, nothing highfalutin, Mr. Manning. So I give him a bit. I'd just written Salome Maloney, El Supremo of the Ritz. So I had it in my back pocket. I thought, he's going to like this. He must have played there with the Film Moss Orchestra because he did all the Mecca places, you know. So that must, must have been his second home at one point. So I thought, he's going to like this. I let him with that one with the F word in it. Like, you know, when, when, uh, what was it? When the music stops. She was lying on the deck. She fell off her stiletto wheels and broke her fucking neck. I thought that's gonna get him if anything is. You know what I mean? So I said, "Well, well give us a, give us a demo." So I went, so I give him that verse. You know, when the when the music starts, you're lying on the deck. She fell off her stiletto wheels and broke her fucking neck. So he give it a bit of a chuckle. He says, "Yeah, I like that. All right, then I'll give you a chance." You know what I mean? But it was the F word and the reference to the Ritz that got me the gig, not the fact that I was a poet. <laughs> this is where before punks, because punk when punk came along, it was the perfect vehicle for you at the time, wasn't it? But pre that, were you just this isolated character doing this stuff, or was there other people? Yeah, like I was you isolated, but I always wanted. A, I mean, I don't. Uh, you know, when I was thirteen, I wanted to be a professional poet because I, obviously I was the best at it, even though the competition was fierce in our class under Mister Malone. I mean, obviously <laughs> I was the best, so therefore uh, I kind of uh, took my gift, honed it into a skill. And then uh, made it my profession. Three step, bish, bash, bet, one, two, three, like that. Uh, but it wasn't as easy as I'm making it sound. Like I say, you know, I, I'd envisaged uh, entering the world of cabaret, which was a flourishing area in Manchester at that time, you know, places like Jerry Harris's Piccadilly Club, the New Luxor Club, the New College Theatre Club. Rafters, Sinatra's in Failsworth. You know, the place was full of it. Madam, uh, what's his name? Foo uh, Foo Lamar's, yeah. Foo Foo's Palace. And the ranch. Those sort of places. And those places, I think there was a couple of places owned by, there was a drag mafia then, wasn't there? All the club owners seemed to be, seemed to have a sideline in drag acts. <laughs> Jackie Carlton, I'm thinking, or Bunny Lewis, Jackie Carlton, and of course, Foo Foo. Frank Lamar, and they seemed to have an iron grip on the cabaret scene at the time. But there were many, many, many cabaret clubs, so I thought, you know, having established that, you know, that it's not impossible to do this stuff in that world, having done the worst, you know, the worst of them all, if you want to say that, the Embo, you know, I figured uh, any of these other town centre places would be a doddle. As long as I kept it kind of, threw a few gags in and did it didn't keep it, you know, wasn't too serious. I mean, these were places of entertainment. I wasn't trying to, you know, there was nothing uh, didactic about it. So I've always kind of uh, approached poetry as a branch of the, uh, you know, art, yeah, but as a branch, you know, I've always tried to take it into uh, the entertainment business. You know, a place where, a place where you wouldn't expect to find poetry. And I made that incongruity work for me. And later on, I applied that to the world of punk rock. I just took, at first, I just took my existing repertoire and did it at triple speed. 
But it was Howard DeVoto's idea that I got involved doing shows with the Buzzcocks and things. But I did like punk rock, you know, my, my introduction to it was via the Ramones, who I still think, are, I mean, can't be better for me. I, I love that band. Perfect pop group. Sensational. Did you get to meet the Ramones? About 78 times. <laughs> <laughs> They're a great band, weren't they? Fabulous. They used to say, you know, when we were here last year, we were on for 45 minutes, and now we've finished in half an hour. We're getting better all the time. <laughs> Speed was everything. Were you a teddy boy then from pretty early on? No, I was too, I was too young. But I did see them around, you know. Uh, Higher Broughton was teddy boy central. Man. Yeah. yeah. Bit of a mod though, yeah? Yeah, I was a mod. That was really the only youth tribe I've ever really been a part of. And even then, we used to deny being mods. As soon as Mod turned into targets on the back of Parkers, we start, we, we called ourselves stylists. <laughs> <laughs> it was all about snobbery and, you know, not being like everybody else. When you started putting your, your poetry to music, whose idea was that? Yeah, that wasn't my idea. I've always thought poetry should stand on its own, really. You know, it should have its mu music, should be built in at the writing stage. So I've never been entirely convinced of the uh, efficacy of putting poetry with music. I was taken along with it because, you know, all that baggage about the beatniks, you know, and poetry and jazz. And I did do a few jazz clubs as well in Manchester early on. The, the Club 43, the Black Lion, the Badiga, you know, places like that, beatnik joints. So they had this, there was always this kind of poetry and jazz thing that, uh, but I never thought it really, I, I, I always think, you know, poetry is music. Mm. Some of my stuff with music is more successful than others, but, you know, wasn't my idea, no. You did some work with Linton Quasi Johnson, didn't you? Yeah, I went on tour with him in around 1981. Yeah, I saw you at the Ritz. His the Ritz we did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was a good tour, because we were the hottest tickets in town, poetry-wise. Back then, you know, there really was only us two. Soon after that, when the punk thing died off a bit and you sort of disappeared a little bit from the uh, the mainstream limelight, and you had a couple of bad years where you... Ten of them. Ten them. bad 15, years. maybe. Can we talk about how bad, the, uh, how bad did it get when you were an addict? Uh, well, I just kind of dropped out of it all, you know. It's, uh, it's that shit's the centre of your universe. I didn't write any poetry. and uh, but, uh, but at the same time, I always worked. I had to, you know. I was living a very feral existence, hands them out, you know. I had to have money in order to get well on a daily basis. So I never stopped doing gigs. It's just that I stopped writing new shit. There were a couple of crucial moments a few years later when you got... The day you found out that Sopranos were going to use one of your tunes, the day that you found out the Arctic Monkeys were going yeah, to do fabulous. something. Plan B. Plan B, yeah, the, the film. How good did you feel on a day like that? It was like oh, Christmas sensational. Day. Sensational. It was, it, was uh, it was the thing that you know made it happen. Just at the right time when I was starting to write again. Yeah. So I really have been luckier than I uh, probably deserve, you know. You know, uh, not many people have two bites of a cherry, you know, and it's not like I'm a legacy act either. You know, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I mean, you know, I, I'm, far, I'm far more successful now than I was back then, you know, in the first place. You know, you had to sell a lot of records to get into the, to make an impression in those days. And, you know, I'm, really, I was a bit of a sideshow, let's face it. But, you know, I'll go along with the mythology that, uh, you know, the return of Johnny Clark. But, you know, really, I've never been this high yeah. profile, really. The, the omnipresent Johnny Clark. That's it, the ubiquitous, high, yeah. please. No. You got to work with another 
another one of my heroes, Hugh Coymel. You did a brilliant album. Yeah, you, I you? loved that. That was a great opportunity, you know. And because uh, I love to sing, that's why I drink. <laughs> it's a great I album. love to sing, and uh, and that was a great opportunity. He already had the tracks done, and I read the repertoire, and, uh, and I already knew all the lyrics to those songs. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience left up to me that would have never happened so thanks h he's good and he's a gentle soul as well i got to meet him uh, yeah, a few nice years guy, ago yeah. lovely bloke. in fact he introduced me to rubois tea to who uh, rubois tea is it red bush tea oh that south african yeah, non-caffeinated right. uh yeah. tea I, i'm thinking this is the guy that used to watch on top of the pops in 1977 and be scared of him because it looked like he'd just bite your head off <laughs> but it was just a proper gentle soul you call him uh ex-frontman of the stranglers and we were privileged, the Inspiral Carpets, uh, you did a little collaboration with us on a track that is probably, possibly the last single that we'll ever release, but uh, you did a track called Let You Down, which is one of That's my right. finest yeah, moments. That's right, yeah, yeah. Thank Gorgeous. you. Hey, thank you, man, thank you. Uh, let's talk about Manchester. I know you're from Salford originally, but the two are intrinsically linked. Try and describe the spirit of Manchester. Well, I've not lived here for 30 years. You've got, you've got to remember, Clint, you know that... When I left, it wasn't the rock and roll uh, city that it is today. Not so much, though, anyway. The, the, the Manchester, I remember, is really, I suppose, quite different to how it is now. What do you think of the development that you see? Now, when you look out the window, literally, the place is changing every month. Yeah, I was amazed when I went down Cross Lane about about four years ago, and it, it, it doesn't go all the way from... Uh, from Broad Street to the docks anymore, you know, they, they, somebody stuck a housing estate right in the middle of it. So I was surprised about that. Uh, it's very difficult to get to get your bearings if you remember it as one thing and it's turned <laughs> into another. Usually you can sort of find your way around as long as they don't interfere with the actual length of a street. You can sort of piece it together, you know, but once they start breaking up, you know, breaking a street in half, <laughs> you know, they're rewriting history. Yeah. They don't want us to have a history. What do you consider to be your greatest work, John? My, uh, what Poetry-wise? Yeah. That's a good question. I suppose I'd have to pick uh, the one that's been most successful for me and the one that's opened the most doors, and that would be chickens, evidently chicken sound. Yeah, it's a work of art. Thank you. I like it. Have you got a mantra as such? Do you have like a, a phrase that keeps you going? When you get up in the morning, do you have a little manifesto? What, like chanting? What, like Russell Brand or something? What, what? Do you have a, a little phrase that, that drives you? That well, I'll tell you what I, get, what I do when I, when I get up in the morning. I pray to God and thank him for the life I've wound up with. That's what I do every morning without fail. I never forget to be grateful. Thank you for my life. You're probably the only person I know that doesn't have a mobile phone still. You've not got a phone? No, I don't have one. <laughs> Can't it wait? <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Can't it wait? Um, who are your favourite humans of Manchester ever, John? Ah, right. Well, uh, you, you know, uh, the late Albert Finney, certainly. Uh, terrific. Uh, I mean, you know, Saturday night and Sunday morning, and that's only the beginning of it. But he never got typecast. After that, he never did another kitchen sink part in his entire career. The nearest thing he did to it was probably Gumshoe. Uh, maybe Chet a little bit in Charlie Bubbles. But he never made a bad movie. He was, he was utterly convincing when he was playing an American. I refer you to Miller's Crossing. 
and uh, I got a soft spot for him because uh, very early on, you know, I went to see that film. I lied about my age. I was tall for my age, so I went to see Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. And I thought, what's all the fuss about James Dean? This kid pisses all over that whinging brat. You know, he was greasy, wasn't he? He was greasy and feral. Fantastic. I loved him in that. Yeah. And he was great in uh, in all the follow-ups as well. Tom Jones, Miller's Crossing, uh, Picasso Summer, Two for the Road. You know, some great movies. And uh, But the reason I connected with him was uh, uh, I had a job at school as a bookies runner, which earned me a lot of money for the for my age. <laughs> had a lot of disposable income. Before they legalised off-track betting, I was a bookies runner. And uh, they always picked uh, underage kids, so you couldn't get actually sent to prison. So, you know, all you had to say, you had a spiel worked out. You know, you went there with an envelope full of bets, and then if a cop, in the unlikely event of a cop stopping you, it was like, well, this gentleman gave me a shilling to deliver this uh, this uh, envelope, uh, sir. You know, and that got, it got you off the, the hook, you know. But usually they didn't matter. Most of the cops were putting bets on anyway. But it was illegal then, off-track uh, off track betting. So when they legalised it, who'd been an off-track bookie but Albert Senior, Albert Finney Senior. So uh, the, the day after they legalised uh, off-track betting, it was a black day for me because I lost my job. I was made, rendered redundant. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it was a good day for Albert Senior. Because uh, his newly successful son opened this swish new betting office on Whit Lane with a, a bottle green opaque window and uh, gold copper plate lettering. Albert Finney going diagonally across the, the window, out and proud. Amazing. You want to put a bet on? This is the place for you. Brilliant. So Albert, yeah. What about the uh, the English teacher, Mr. Malone? Needs yeah, let's mention. put Mr. Malone in there. He's the guy that opened the literary door, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Because about poetry, the thing about poetry is, and 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 the thing that Mr. Malone understood right away was that poetry is a phonetic medium. That's why I say that music should be written into poetry because it is a phonetic medium. It's not meant to be read to yourself in a book. How do you know if it's any good unless you read it aloud? You've got no idea what it's like. But Mr. Malone knew this, and so he recited it to you. You know what I mean? So you, you, you got it orally before uh, you actually read it, you know, yeah. and, that, and that became a... That was an early, very valuable lesson to me. It sounds like he inspired a bunch of kids there proper, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot different to the way uh, secondary moderns are perceived now, aren't they? You know, this sort of uh, oversimplified idea that we were all just thrown on the social garbage dump. You know, it, wasn't, it really wasn't like that at all. Go on then, give us a poem. Okay, this is uh, page 11. Page 11 on your luckiest guy alive. This one's called The List. A rational dream, a bucket of steam, a riveting piece in Heat magazine, a gay baby in Bethnal Green, none of the above has ever been seen. Chinese cheese, African skis, a technical term for the back of our knees, developers embracing trees, an argument where each side agrees, a sergeant major saying please, you won't find any of these. 
I think that I shall never see that developer hug that tree or a pussycat swimming in the deep blue sea, the feminist hooker who splits the fee, the best things in life that come for free, these things remain unknown to me. The pugilist without a fist, the fantasist without a tryst, the onanist without a wrist, the journalist who isn't pissed, all of the above exist on the list of shit that don't exist. I don't think I ever met a state nurse with a private jet, a presbytery, Bernadette, a bucky wiping out all debts, returning unsuccessful bets and try and try and try to forget what don't necessarily get those foam rubber castanets, that health-inducing cigarette, maybe one day, not yet. Kosher ham, vegan spam, a virgin bride with a double pram, a chocolate teapot, a plastic pan, a nylon kettle, a girl named Stan. If I can't find them, no one will. Genius. Johnny Clark, thank you very much for that. <laughs> Before we go, John, describe Manchester in three words. Uh, pissing down again. <laughs> Brilliant. Dr John Cooper Clark, thank you for being a human of excess Manchester. Thanks a lot, Clint. That was Dr John Cooper Clark. Next week, I'll be joined by founder of the Manchester International Festival, Christine Court, ahead of the launch of this year's festival. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us, feel free to leave us a review. We love hearing your feedback. Thanks to our friends at Safer Roads GM for sponsoring this series, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.